If you have your Bible with you this evening, if you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, we'll be reading from chapter 2. And as we share this evening the familiar story of the birth of Christ together, hearing and imagining it another time together tonight, may we have fresh eyes and fresh ears, perhaps even a new perspective as we hear the familiar words and we recognize the realities into which Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In those days, did you hear the phrase that Luke begins his narrative with here? In those days. And Luke isn't referring to what we might think of as the good old days. God's people in those days were tired. They felt hopeless. They were under Roman rule, oppressed by a vast empire and oppressive regime in which there was peace, but only because the Romans ruled with an iron fist. And in the Roman world, Caesar was Lord. He was the savior whom was to be revered and worshiped. So in those days, Caesar could force the people to do really whatever it was that he wanted them to do. So because of this government and this political reality, here was Joseph and a very pregnant Mary who changed their plans and they made their way to Bethlehem. And it was because of this political decree that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the town of David, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah, declaring that one would come out of Bethlehem who would be the ruler over Israel. So Luke's narrative here is very straightforward. It seems very simple, right? But he frames this story and he sets the scene for us within this mighty empire. And the bigger setting here is important for us to see and to understand because Luke presents us with many contrasts here as we picture this context into which God chose to usher in his kingdom through Jesus. Here were God's people again ruled by a mighty empire. 
And here is where we find God's story interwoven into the context of Caesar's power. This was the moment that God's people had been waiting for, the moment that had been promised and prophesied and anticipated, the Messiah that the people had longed for, hoping that he would rescue them from oppression and return Israel to a mighty nation. In those days. And here in verse 7, Luke provides us with a bit of a turning point. Something is happening. And Luke writes it in such a straightforward way, but consider the depth and the meaning of these words with me from verse 7. Luke writes, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. This is a pivotal moment in God's story because a new hope was breaking in. In the midst of this oppressive, totalitarian government, in the middle of the mess and the suffering, in the midst of seemingly hopeless circumstances among ordinary people in a humble location, the promised Messiah was born. And this humble setting in Bethlehem is just as important for us to see and understand as this bigger Roman context, because while it may have felt that in those days that Caesar ruled the world, here is the King of Kings, born in humbleness and in simplicity. This is a new day with new hope and new beginnings. God is at work fulfilling his promises. And this long-awaited moment in God's story is also part of our story. We are invited into this story, and not just tonight on Christmas Eve, but in every moment. For to us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord, a Savior who was born for each one of us, who enters into our messiness, our challenges, our struggles, our lives, God with us. So on this night in Bethlehem, kingdoms suddenly and mysteriously intersected the old with the new, the kingdom of this world, the Roman kingdom, and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world with Caesar Augustus as the self-proclaimed iron-fisted savior and the humble birth of a new king, the true savior, the kingdom of this world with seemingly powerful and mighty rulers and a baby, the Messiah, born to peasant parents and placed in a humble manger. This Messiah ushering in 
new possibilities with his kingdom of peace and justice and mercy, new hope. And yet it didn't look as anyone would have expected. Luke writes, Mary wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Humble, simple, ordinary, vulnerable, opposite really of what we would expect of a king, of a savior, a prince of peace, rather than a dominating force to be feared, a merciful king, ruling with justice and love rather than military might and power, a savior who would humble himself and die on a Roman cross so that we might be reconciled to God, a king who gave himself for all people. And Jesus' kingdom, his reign, continues to break into our world. These kingdoms continue to intersect, and it's not in the grandeur of palaces or mansions or armies or political systems. It's not from the seemingly powerful, but rather his kingdom lifts up the lowly and the ordinary. It welcomes the outcast. His kingdom feeds the hungry, clothes and shelters the poor, frees the captives, reconciles enemies. His kingdom proclaims the good news, forgives sin, and transforms lives. This is the Savior that we celebrate on this night, the promised Messiah who came to dwell among us, to walk among us, to live among us, to enter into our suffering, and to save us in a way that no one expected. He comes to us in our sadness, our grief, our suffering, our celebration, our everyday, ordinary lives. And he saves us, and he changes us to be like himself, a savior who remains with us through the power of his spirit. Emmanuel, God with us. And as the words of the final verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem read, O holy child of Bethlehem, Descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel. Would you pray with me? Loving Lord, Jesus, Emmanuel, we celebrate your coming and we rejoice in your promises. We joyfully welcome you to this world and we celebrate your presence in our lives. Amen. If you would, just close your eyes with me for a second. 
I want you to think for a moment about the greatest news you have ever received. Maybe it was the most important piece of news, the most exciting, the greatest news you've ever received. Think about how excited you were for that news and all of the people who immediately came to mind that you wanted to share that news with. I want you to keep thinking about that as we read from Luke 2. I'm going to continue where Pastor Emily left off in verse 8, and it says this, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Now, I will tell you that some of the greatest news I ever received, I received at home in our upstairs teeny tiny apartment when I was all by myself. I was going to be all by myself for the entire weekend. I had no one to whom I could go tell this good news. We were pregnant with our first child, highly unexpectedly, but over the moon nonetheless, and Tyler was gone. He was gone for four days, four days. I found out the day he left. And I had to wait those entire four days while I was wanting to do nothing but shout it from the rooftops. I would have told anybody if I had seen a person. And so I just stayed home because I didn't want to tell anybody before I told him. That wouldn't have been right. But I wanted to shout this news. And in this story, the angels, they come and they shout their news, the greatest piece of news that had ever been told. And they go and they tell it to the shepherds. Now, when I got my good news, I was still in school. I was at Olivet. And I could, this would have been like me going to Olivet and finding the janitor in the basement of the oldest building on campus where nobody wanted to be because it was dark and it was 
musty, and it was just kind of gross down there, and I could have told this lowly janitor my great news. This is what it was like for the shepherds to have been given this great news. This is a story of turning things upside down. It's a story of contrasts. We see that Luke is careful. He describes the shepherds as living in the fields. These shepherds, they are not landowners. They do not own these flocks. They do not own these fields. They do not have homes. They live on this land in which they work. The owners, they're, they're asleep in the comfort of their homes with their families and their beds, but these shepherds, they are like these night shift slaves. They're low-paid wage earners. They protect this flock at night at their own risk. And while we often look at this idea that Christ was being revealed to the simple and the lowly as opposed to the powerful and the noteworthy, what I want us to see is all throughout Luke's gospel, but starting right here, he shows us that there's a stronger element at play. There's this socioeconomic element at play all throughout. And Luke, more than any other New Testament writer, he portrays Jesus as privileging the poor. Salvation for Luke is a reversal of the status quo. This news was not for the high and the mighty, the kings of the earth who thought themselves gods and saviors. It was for the lowly. Last Sunday, we looked at the Magnificat, right? We looked at Mary's song, and in it she prophesies concerning what God is going to do in Christ. And she says this, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. And the story of the reveal of Christ's birth to the shepherds in the field is the first sign in this narrative that this prophecy is being fulfilled. For you see, it is not just in Jesus' ministry. It is not just when he's 30 years old and starting his ministry that we see this happening. We see God redeeming the marginalized and the oppressed right from the moment of Christ's birth. This redemption is at the core of who he is. It is his very being. And for Luke, Jesus' very existence and identity is one of turning the tables on the inequality of the world. This story of the shepherds is one that is only found in Luke's gospel. We don't find it in any of the other gospels. But there is another story that Luke tells of another shepherd that, again, we only see in his gospel. And I want us to take a quick look at this as we bring things all the way around. The second story is from Luke 15, and it is the parable of the one who leaves to find the single lost sheep. I'm going to start in verse 3, and it says this, So he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. 
And so Luke tells the story, and we see that in both stories, we have a shepherd who's guarding a flock. We see them leave their flock to go and find something. We see them find it, and then we see them rejoicing. And while these stories vary significantly in their purpose for Luke, they paint a broader picture for us this Christmas of the work of the Christ child in each of our lives. You see, both of these passages have to do with salvation. In the first, those who find Jesus are wooed to him by a message of great hope. These shepherds, they go and they find Jesus. There's a shift in their circumstances. There is a message given to them that they cannot ignore, and they go, seeing their need, they go to him. But in the second, it is Christ himself who comes to find the lost. The lost who perhaps don't even realize that they need to be found. I see myself in that sheep who's gone off by themselves thinking that they don't need anyone or anything. They don't need to be guarded. They don't need help. They don't need community. And yet Jesus goes and finds this person who doesn't even know they need him. And Luke is telling us that no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter what status we have, that God is with us. He is calling to us. He is searching for us. He is inviting us to his table where there is no status anymore. There is no privilege. There is no power. There is only incarnation. There is only God with us. There is only transforming us from ordinary to extraordinary, from lost to found from death to life. There is a flipping of the kingdom. And we see that as we see Luke remind us of these shepherds who go, who see the Christ child, who share the greatest news that has ever been shared. And it starts with the lowest among us. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for this day when we celebrate the miraculous birth of your son. And God, we pray that you would transform us as you were transformed so that we may perfectly love you with our whole being. That we may love you for the sake of the one who came humble and powerless and yet became glory and power. Christ. Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forward. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. We have heard tonight about the cruelty of Mary's situation, a woman made to walk many miles at a critical point in her pregnancy, the greed of the census and the power of Caesar who ruled with cruelty, the false peace of Rome and the hopeless mess that Israel was in, and the contrast that was the arrival and the person of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the, the King of Kings. We have heard about the ordinary night in a field made suddenly extraordinary by the arrival of angels who, who shouted the good news and pointed the way to Jesus. The contrast between the lowly shepherds who were seen by God as worthy, although they were seen by the rest of the world as among the least. And now this passage, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. In all of these, the people that we are presented with, the situations that we're presented with, have dramatic contrasts. The arrival of Jesus provided for us dramatic contrasts between a world that could not heal itself, save itself, a world that was stuck in a hopeless state, and the presence of the kingdom of God that Jesus established. In Jesus, everything changed. Hear how Isaiah celebrates. He says, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, your people, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The day that Isaiah anticipates is a day of liberation and deliverance, and we have received that day. We live in it now in Christ. Listen to how he celebrates. He says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Those warriors... They are not going around barefoot and naked. The day Isaiah anticipates is far more dramatic than that. These soldiers are no longer needed for war. Blood is no longer shed. The old ways are not the new ways, and the instruments of the old ways are no longer needed. They can be burned. Isaiah has already anticipated this reality in Isaiah chapter 2 when he anticipates the day in which spears, the instruments of the old way, are beaten into pruning hooks, an instrument of nourishment and of gardening. Isaiah is dreaming of a world that looks dramatically different from the one he's living in, and it starts with a birth. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Until the birth of Jesus, Jews may have believed that this prophecy was already fulfilled. Many thought that it referred to the birth of Hezekiah, the king who pointed Judah back to God, a righteous king who banned the worship of other deities and assured that the temple was reserved for the worship of God alone. But Hezekiah did not bring deliverance. He did not forgive sin. He, he was a good and a righteous king, but he could not heal the nations. Warriors did not burn their bloodied clothes or boots. Judah would fall to a heavier burden than they had ever known, and the greatness of his kingdom, well, to that there was an end. Judah would fall. None of, no one in Jesus' day likely read the words of Isaiah's prophecy as about a coming Messiah. More likely, they thought the words had already been fulfilled. But Jesus fulfilled this prophecy in a way no other could. 
this Christmas, I want to remind us that we should not underestimate our Savior. He did not come to take us partway to victory or to do the best he could to transform our exteriors but not our interiors or to make the world a somewhat better place. Jesus changes everything, and the contrast he brings is dramatic. The contrast between a world with Jesus and a world without him is not subtle or unremarkable. It is a difference between darkness and brilliant light. And if we allow ourselves to think that the infant whose birth we celebrate is anything less than the King of Kings, our Messiah, our Savior, God in the flesh, and that through him all the world is being made new, not refurbished, brand new, then we have underestimated him. What we celebrate at Christmas isn't good luck or good fortune or good feelings, it's good news. It's the only good news. Because Hezekiah, he felt like good news in his day, and certainly his obedience made a difference, but only for a short while. The difference Jesus makes is eternal. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government shall be on his shoulders. Do not think of his government as one with emperors or czars or senators or prime ministers or presidents. He did not come to make broken systems less broken. Think of his governance, his kingship, as the only one capable of healing the nations, of redeeming lost people, of restoring broken souls. Isaiah does not say the people walking in darkness lit a lantern so that they could see the next step. He says, he says something far greater than that. The contrast is far greater than that. The light they see is marvelous, dazzling, brilliant. And he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I can't read this passage without hearing Handel's Messiah. And if you're not familiar with it, I want you to do yourself a favor and go home and look up on YouTube. Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born, the twelfth movement in his oratorio, because the names are, are sung, these titles are sung with tremendous praise, wonderful counselor, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These titles evoke such praise and worship and longing, such longing, because those titles are such contrasts to what we have in this time that we live in, in the in-between, the now and the not yet, the kingdom that was established and is in Christ and the kingdom that is to come in its fullness. And in this in-between time, the world is still meandering in the darkness, but God's people are invited to walk according to the light to act as agents of healing and restoration and reconciliation and to bring the light with them wherever they go, inviting the world to know the dramatic contrast between a life of brokenness and a life in Christ. Tonight we celebrate the, the contrast that took place, the unspeakable dramatic contrast that took place when our Savior was born. And we will leave this place and re-enter a world that is in very desperate need of the good news that we celebrate. Will they see that dramatic difference in you? That the light of Christ is in you? Will they see the contrast of a life lived out of love for Jesus? Will you pray with me?
In you, O Lord, all things are made new. All realities are turned from their upside-down state back right-side up again. We confess that, that sometimes we think too little of about what you can do and what you are doing. You are not here to make things a little better. You came here to turn all things right side up again, to heal the nations, to restore our lives, and to reconcile us to you. And the difference that makes, it's beyond our comprehension. And so we pray, Lord, that we would give ourselves over tonight to our Savior, born a child in Bethlehem, who is at work in this world, making all things new. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We praise you for this day that we celebrate. Amen.